0: Psalm 34, starting with verse 1, it reads, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and it rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who take res- takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord, for those who fear him like nothing. Young lions like food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the the Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. Praise be to God for our word. Y'all can be seated. I want to go before the Lord in prayer once more. Father, we want to bless your name. We want your praise to be on our lips. We want to boast in you. We come seeking you and and petitioning you with expectation for you to answer. And we do all of this, Father, especially because of Christ. We do this because unlike David, who wrote this psalm, we know that you hear our prayers. We know that our prayers are delivered to you by an intercessor, a great high priest who goes before you on our behalf. And so we thank you for him. We thank you that we get to praise his holy name, rejoice in his sacrifice for sin, his victory over death. And see all of that depicted through what you teach and lay out on your word. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to Psalm 34 this morning, that you will reveal the truth of your word to us. I know that we can't comprehend this with our natural minds if your spirit doesn't help. And so we pray that you give us spiritual understanding. Allow us to see this word and, and, and to not just comprehend it with our heads, Father, but to be pierced by it in our hearts. And then to go live lives embodying what it is that we see here. Father, I pray that you bring conviction where it's necessary and needed, that you give encouragement where it's necessary and needed. And that you'd help us to learn what it looks like to respond to you, who's a never-ending, faithful God. Father, I pray for my own head and heart. As I attempt to preach your word, I must be reminded that I'm not fit for this. You're a perfect God. Without sin. Your word is without error. And yet you're willing to use sinful, flawed, errant men like myself to proclaim it. And so, Lord, I must ask for your help. I pray that you would make up for all of my inadequacy, all of my insufficiency, that you would be who you are so that your word goes forth and in a supernatural way. Changes lives, alters eternities, and results in the building up and sanctification of your church. We need your aid to understand. I need your aid to preach God. So I pray that you help us, that you help me now. I pray this for your glory. With dependence upon your spirit. In the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. There have been many stories written and many movies watched about soldiers who came up with great war tactics and had great war skills throughout history. There's something about the bravery of a soldier at battle that inspires and motivates. There's something about the cleverness of a soldier who's working to form a plan for how he'll prevail against the enemy. It's attractive. It's compelling. It, it makes those who read about it or watch it want to emulate what's seen. And there are many examples of this throughout history. Tecumseh Sherman is believed to be the one who invented the total war strategy. It's a strategy in which a nation considers all resources and all individuals within its society to be contributors to the war. It's an all-hands-on-deck kind of battling. Quintus Fabius Maximus Verucasos. I think I said that right. He's widely regarded as the father of guerrilla warfare. He's believed to be the first one who was willing to fight a war in unconventional ways. He didn't believe war had to be fought on a battlefield as it traditionally is. So he came up with tactics to, to 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 bring random ambushes and quick attacks against the enemy. This guerrilla tactic does whatever is necessary to gain an advantage, whatever is necessary to put the enemy at a disadvantage. Harlan K. Ullman, he's known for coining the term shock and awe. He gave a name to this tactic that has been used for some time. A shock and awe strategy is one in which uh, you seek to shock the enemy and and, uh, to put them in a state of awe by catching them off guard and attacking them at a time they least expect. Many ways to do battle. Numerous strategies to win at war. But I wonder if you're familiar with the story of the great war hero who escaped battle by pretending to be insane. True story. There was a well-known hero of war. He was on the run from one man who wanted to kill him, and as he fled, he found himself having stumbled into the territory of another enemy. It's a bad place to be. So as you guess, he was captured by the enemy that he stumbled into, and he was taken to their king. And as this enemy king deliberated and, and, and tried to recognize whether this is actually the man that they thought he was, and, and if he was, what they were going to do to him, the man started to act insane. The account that tells of this says that he acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So when this man realized that he was captured and surrounded by enemies that were trying to kill him, he did what my grandmama used to call acting a fool. Laughter And when the king saw him acting like this, he assumed that this couldn't be the great war hero that his soldiers thought he was. He thought it was a mistake, like surely they'd mistaken a madman for the war hero that he resembled. And so the king let him go. Little did that king know, this was the war hero, and he just escaped another enemy alive, all because he acted a fool. This story is. Uh, the true story of King David from the Bible. Uh, Looking at this morning's passage, if you look just under the chapter heading, you'll probably see a summary title given by the Bible's publishers. But then beneath that, you should see a little preface to the song. It'll say something along the lines of concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out and he departed. That summarizing statement is the historic title of the song. It was there in some of the oldest Bible manuscripts that have been found, and and scholars actually debate about whether or not it was there when the psalm was originally penned by David himself. And these little summarizing titles are all throughout the psalms. If you look just before what we would call verse 1 of each psalm, and there's good evidence that suggests that these could be part of the original manuscripts themselves. But the reason to pay attention to these titles is because when they're there, they give context for what's happening in the psalm. This particular summarizing title takes us back to that story of David's encounter with Abimelech and the Gathites, and, and, and we can turn to, to 1 Samuel chapter 21 to see it at another time. But here's the thing. You may hear that story about David, and you might think to yourself, man, what a coward. Like He escaped battle by pretending to be someone other than himself. But you can't argue with the fact that David did come out of that thing alive, right? But he did indeed escape battle. So while some may see this act as cowardly, others think of it as brilliant. David was quick on his feet. He thought of a plan to escape the enemy. He acted well enough to make them think that he was someone else. I mean, if anything, this is a great display of shrewdness, right? After David escapes, he goes and writes the song that we're studying this morning. And what we'll find in studying this psalm is that David doesn't take time to consider whether or not his actions were cowardly or shrewd. David doesn't take this time to think about what he did, but instead he chooses to see this escape as rescue from the Lord. He goes and focuses on what God had done. See, David doesn't take credit for himself after escaping. He credits God as the one who allowed him to escape what could have been a situation of death. And now I'm reading about how David gave credit to God and looking at David's response to God's faithfulness. There are four actions of David's that I want us to observe. Number one, in response to God's faithfulness, the first act of David's that we'll see is a resolution to praise. He resolves to praise God in response to his faithfulness. And then we'll see that he gives an invitation with assurance. He invites others to join him and he assures them that there's value in doing so. Early we see that David responds to God's faithfulness by giving a tutorial on life. He teaches a quick lesson about honoring the Lord in response to his faithfulness. And then lastly, David's response to God's faithfulness. He does so by issuing a promise of reward. He yet again assures those he's addressing that responding to God's faithfulness with faithfulness back to him will yield a reward for all who do. Uh, verse 1, as we begin looking at David's resolution to praise, uh, we see that he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And then in verse 2, he says, I will boast in the Lord. Now, a couple of quick things to note right here. First, these references David makes to himself when he uses the word I in these first couple of verses, this isn't a lackadaisical I. In verse 2, the Hebrew word for soul is actually mentioned. So some translations put soul in the place of I in verses 1 and 2. Others place it in verse 2 where it actually appears in Hebrew, and then others don't use it in either place because they're aiming for simplicity by using the word I in both verses. But my reason for pointing this out is because David's use of the Hebrew word for soul is an indicator of the extent and depth of his praise. So this isn't David lacklustrely saying that he's going to praise God. He says his soul is involved. He's saying that just like Brogan reminded us this morning, his inner depths, the the inward most part of his personhood, the whole of his being, he wants to be aimed at praise of God. Second thing to notice, we walk through the passage. David naturally tells us who he's praising, right? Remember I told you he doesn't write this psalm and and, and use this psalm to write about his own greatness and cleverness and having escaped the enemy. But he tells us he will bless the Lord at all times. Verse 2, he will boast in the Lord. So he's blessing the Lord and boasting in the Lord. But David doesn't just tell us the object of his praise those two times at the beginning of this psalm. Throughout the whole psalm, friends, there's this resounding declaration of God as the object of his praise. I mean, let's just look real quick and, and, and count the number of times we see David use the phrase the Lord. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord. Verse 2, I will boast in the Lord. Verse 3, I will proclaim the Lord's greatness. Verse 4, I sought the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord heard. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 9, fear the Lord. Verse 10, seek the Lord. Verse 11, be taught the fear of the Lord. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord. Verse 16, the face of the Lord. Verse 17, the Lord hears. Verse 18, the Lord is there. Verse 19, but the Lord rescues. Verse 22, the the Lord redeems. So 16 times in this psalm, we see David outright refer to the Lord, and then it's kind of reinforced with other pronouns that reference God all throughout the rest of the psalm. David praises the Lord. He seeks the Lord. He's rescued and protected by the Lord. He teaches about the Lord. And so you read this psalm, and you're not left guessing who it is that this passage is supposed to direct our attentions to. There's no question that David's intention with this is to direct our attention to God. It even seems that he wrote this to make us to know and, and, and love and pursue and trust God all the more. And then as a byproduct of growing in those things, to praise God all the more. To thank God for his goodness and his faithfulness all the more. David wants us to be like him and bless the Lord at all times. To, to have praise unto God continuously on our lips. To boast in the Lord. To boast in the Lord. I will boast in the Lord. I will boast in the Lord. Y'all see that? I will boast in the Lord, David says. I'll go ahead and put my cards on the table here. I'm about to hop on a soapbox. I've been excited to get to the songs because I knew they'd give us the opportunity to think through this. Boasting is natural, right? Somebody just thought, uh oh, like, we ain't supposed to talk about boasting. Like, that's ungodly. We as Christians shouldn't be a boastful people. Here's the thing you were created to boast. Believe it or not, you were created to boast. See, the reason boasting comes so naturally to you is because God created you with the purpose for your life, all of us. He created us with the purpose for our lives to be beings who boast in Him. So your life exists. You know, people talk about, like, I want to find my life's purpose and this. I'll tell you your life's purpose. Your life's purpose, your existence, what you were created to do is to boast in the Lord. God put man and woman on earth, right? He gave them instructions for how to live. The text in Genesis tells us that they were created in his image and in his likeness. And his instructions for uh, for them were to be fruitful, uh, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and to rule. So God basically says to man, look, I've made you as close to likeness of me as any other creature ever will be. So go do cool stuff and and exercise rule throughout the earth, because when you do, you do it in my name. And that comes back and it says a whole lot about who I am. So he told him to boast since day one. The human life has had the purpose of being one big boasting session that makes a big deal of God. But we know the story continues, right? Humans uh, forget what proper boasting is. Uh, We sin. The grasp of, of what our initial purpose is is lost. And ever since, we've been trying to rediscover what that purpose is. And so we boast. You know, we do what is natural to us. We do what we created to do. But because we're sinful and our ways are now distorted, we boast. We do what's natural. But sometimes while we're trying to rediscover the right way, we sometimes boast in the wrong ways. We boast in ourselves, we boast in our possessions, we boast in our strength and wisdom, and and, and many things that are not God. But David says, after seeing God's faithfulness to rescue him from Abimelech, he says he will boast in the Lord. And here's where I hop on my soapbox. See, boasting, according to the definition of the word, is outward detectable, and external, and expressed, and and manifest, and unmistakable. The word boasting literally means to express praise for or pride in something. And here's the pitch. This is why I'm taking so much of the the, the space in my sermon to talk about these first two verses. I want us to qualm with what I think has become the default for certain circles of Christianity, including the ones that we find ourselves in. See, I think we're missing something, if we lack expressiveness in our worship unto God. I think the way John Piper writes about it in his book, Providence, is great. He says, God's goal is not simply that the glory of his perfection shine, but that we find his glory praiseworthy. No, not just find it praiseworthy, but feel it as praiseworthy. Feel his value, because otherwise our praise would be hypocrisy. God is really pursuing the exaltation of his beauty and the enjoyment of his praising people to the degree that our praise is without feeling to that degree that it falls short of commending the preciousness of what we praise. Half-hearted praise is poor commendation, but God does not intend for the final praise he seeks to be a poor commendation. His glory is of infinite value. It is infinitely beautiful. And then later he quotes C.S. Lewis who wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because, not, because it, the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed as consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. They delight in one another's beauty. The delight in one another's beauty is incomplete till it is expressed. So Piper and Lewis are making the point that we're not just pursuing knowledge of God, but we're pursuing knowledge of God that makes us feel the reality of who God is, and then makes us express praise unto him. Like, we're not dualists or trialists, right? Like, like we don't believe that our souls and our bodies are separate from our minds and different stuff like that. So we don't believe in a worship that affects the head or the heart and soul or the body in separate ways. They're all affected together, which means they all act in response together. Humans think, and we feel, and then we respond. We express. That's the way it is when we talk about sports or hear a joke or watch a movie or read a book. God designed us this way. But somewhere... Along the historical spectrum, somebody made it seem that reservation and quietness was most proper for worship. So in many Christian circles, this has kind of become a cultural layer that has been laid over the top of what we understand worship to be. Like if we consider clapping or random expressions of verbal praise to God as something that's distracting or rude or discomforting, then we might be looking more to our cultural biases than what we see modeled in the Bible. And from day one, Pioneer church, we've said we want to be a church which values kingdom reflecting unity. One of the primary ways that we can do that is by considering our own biases in this area and choosing to embrace discomfort by gleaning some good practices from other cultures. But here's the thing we've got to catch. We're not only doing this because we seek to be a diverse church. We want to be a people who do this because of our own convictions that we have a God who is worthy of us being expressive in praise. So this isn't us looking out at the landscape of different church cultures and asking ourselves, what can we see and imitate in order to be something we're not? This is us trying to look and and, and become what we see God's word tell us to be. And when we look at God's word, beloved, what we see is that his people have always been a people of praise and a people of outwardly expressed praise at that. And so, yeah, we we, want to think about different cultures and look at the landscape of different church cultures. You know, we want to step outside of this bubble that's familiar and comfortable to us, but we're not asking what we can imitate without forming convictions. We're asking what other good biblical convictions do other cultures have that we might need to take up because it would help us to be better emulators of what God's word calls us all to be. And so when, when, you know, we're in the gathering and and I do little things to try to get y'all to talk to one another. Or I do things to try to get you to talk to myself while I'm preaching. Or, or, or when we ask you to sing loudly with a strong voice or to heartily say amen after a faithful prayer has been voiced. We're not doing these things because we want you to look or sound a certain way as a church. We're asking these things of you because we're trying to train you in what seems to have been worshipful behavior for God's people ever since he began assembling a people. So it shouldn't be solely because of solicitation. When we solicit external praise from you, we're trying to, to, to help you form a habit of pondering God's goodness, then outwardly expressing thanks for it. This is what God's people have always done. They think about his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his provision and his love and his patience and his kindness and his faithfulness to them in things both big and small, in, in salvation from sin into hope and in the simple fact that your table have food, has food on it and your backs have clothes on it. And then they consider all of these things. They remind one another of how God was kind to give them. And then as we see in this passage, there'd be these invitations for collective praise and magnifying the name of the Lord. It's all over the pages of scripture. This is what God's people have always done. And I know some of us are probably discomforted by this. You might even be sitting there listening with a defensive ear right now. You're thinking to yourself like, well, that's not all we see in scripture. You said there were some times in in God's word when there was silence and, and and there was this more inward, preserved admiration of God. And you're absolutely right. There's a place for that as well. That's why we have moments of silence built into our worship gathering. We, we believe that there's a place for both. There are times when we worship the Lord through song, and if a song is really ministering to me, you know, I get louder, and, 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 and I'm saying amen and hallelujah, and I'm clapping between verses. Sometimes I'll even look around to see if I can lock eyes with somebody, and, and, and we loudly sing this song to the Lord together. A lot of y'all won't lock eyes with me. You kind of look away. <laughs> we'll get there. And then at other times when a song is really ministering to me and I stand there in that spot, I just hush and I close my eyes. I think about God's goodness. I consider the truth about God that the song lyrics are reminding me of. I, I listen to the voices that sing this truth from behind me and I'm silent, much more reservedly worshiping the Lord. Both are good. They're examples of both in God's word And I want us to be the kind of church where there's a freedom and even encouragement to act in both of these worshipful ways, as long as it's actually worship. Now you can go too far and, and and move the needle to the point where you're beyond true worship, but let's commit pioneer church to leaning in and, and learning what the Bible holds out for us as prescription for well-balanced worship and praise and boasting unto our God. There went half of my sermon on a two verse soapbox. Uh, I'll leave it there. We'll get to revisit it in few, future weeks. And uh, Considering God's faithfulness to him, David says he will bless the Lord at all times. God's praise will always be on his lips. He tells us he's going to boast in the Lord and the humble, David says, will hear and be glad. Uh, that's David basically saying that as he takes this humble posture of being bowed and worshiped before the Lord and expresses praise unto him, those who are also seeking to be humbly bowed before God will be glad about David's praise. They'll be glad to see their God being glorified. So naturally, David extends an invitation for them to join him in this praise. Let's look at this invitation with assurance that David gives to the people. I told y'all before that I was in a pretty severe car wreck my sophomore year in college. Well, part of my injuries was that I had a broken jaw. But you wouldn't have guessed this if you were there the night of the wreck. I mean, I was talking up a storm, y'all. And I just come within inches of losing my life. And so all I could think to do was to tell people about the God who saved my life, right? And so once the ambulance had transported me to the hospital, I'm there. They got me kind of strapped to this stretcher. They knew I had broken bones, so they didn't want me to move around and do more damage. And for a few hours, I mean, nurses were all around. They'd be in and out of the room working on this, running that test, fixing this IV cord. And I'm laying there. It's the middle of the night. I just almost died. None of my family and friends have made it yet because it is the middle of the night. And I think the nurses might have assumed that because of the circumstances, I'd go to sleep. They were wrong. (laughs) Every time a nurse came in, I started talking about Jesus. And I'm talking like Genesis to Revelation talking about Jesus, like... (laughs) I was just reminded of how short life could be, so I was trying to give them the gospel, the whole Bible story, and every story from my own life about how good God was, all in one night. Like that—that that was my focus when these nurses came. I was evangelizing my head off, if you want to put it like that. And then finally, one of the nurses worked up the boldness to ask a question, but she didn't ask about the Bible or my gospel presentations. She very kindly asked. She said, "Um, she said, hey, hey, sweetie." is your jaw hurting? (laughs) I said, yeah, it's it's broken. Like it's broken in two places. Of course it's hurting. And she said, well, maybe if you wouldn't talk so much, it wouldn't hurt so bad. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember laying there thinking to myself, like, she just told me to shut up. (laughs) I mean, I didn't intend any harm. As far as I knew, I was just praising and boasting in my God. And if I could go back and relive that situation, I say to the nurse what David tells these people he's addressing in verse 3. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together, my friend. I'd be interested to see how she responded to that. But the reason I'd be willing to, to extend this invitation to her like David does to the people is because God, in his faithfulness, is worthy of all people praising him. And also because I know that all who do will experience his goodness. And that's what the next few verses lay out for is David extends his invitation while also giving the people assurance that God is good to those who mark themselves as his worshipers. In verse four, we see the assurance offer that the Lord answers and rescues when we seek him. In verse five, we're told that. That he, he removes reason for shame and gives radiant joy when we look to him. Verse 6, he hears and saves when we cry. He sends his heavenly angels to a camp and camp around us, according to verse 7. So on and so forth. David continues to give his assurance that God is good to those who, who, who mark themselves as worshipers of him all the way down through verse 10. And now we look at this set of verses and we can tell that David has absolutely zero doubts about whether or not the Lord is good to his people. He's writing with a sense of assurance that God is good. He, he's writing with this desire to see others join him in experiencing this goodness. He knows that if they don't experience it in this life, then there is a coming life where they will experience it. And now if we think back to the context of what David is reflecting on, some of the language he uses in offering this assurance begins to make more sense. In verses four and five, when he talks about Seeking the Lord and, and being rescued from all his fears and having reason for shamefulness be removed from his face while gaining radiant joy. He's likely thinking back to that moment of standing before King Abimelech, not knowing if he'd see another day of life. I mean, what situation would be more fearful, right? You're captured by your enemies. You're standing before their king and you know you actually are who they think you are. David was a warrior. To be in a situation like this and to be utterly helpless brings shame on a warrior. David says, the Lord rescued him from his fear. He removed his reason for shame. In verse 6, David rightly refers to himself as a poor man who cried out and was hurt by God and rescued from his troubles. He recognized that he had nothing to help himself when he was standing before Abimelech. In verse 7, he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. We don't know exactly what David means by the angel of the Lord. There's a reference uh, many other references to this, uh, especially in the Old Testament narratives. Uh, and sometimes the angel of the Lord is understood to be an indirect reference to God himself. Uh, other times it's a reference to a host of, of heavenly beings who God charges to protect his people. Uh, other times it's a supernatural delegate sent by God to deliver a message or, or even to deliver wrath at times. And then at other times, it's simply a reference to a being who God sends to provide supernatural aid to his people when they're in the tough circumstances. David could have meant any one of those But the point stands to be proven that when you live with reverential fear and worship of God, you gain his company and protection from all other things. That's what David rests in there in verse seven. He was physically alone when he was captured, but God was with him. And he attests to it when he writes this song. Verses eight through 10. David reinforces this assurance that God is always good to his people. And he does it with these metaphors about tasting and eating. He writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. For happy is the one who takes refuge in him. Verses 9 through 10, you who are his holy one. He's saying, you who call yourselves God's people, fear the Lord. That word fear means to have a respectful worship for. Uh, for those who fear him like nothing, while young lions, even these great predators that lions are, lack food and go hungry. For those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. So David's making the point that you can bet on God. <laughs> if you try God, then your craving for goodness will be met like it is when you try one of those samples that they put out when you, while you're at Sam's Club and you know, you're know you hungry and you're grocery shopping. It's such a fulfilling thing to just partake of one of those samples. David's saying if you try God, your cravings will be met. He's guaranteeing God to be good. Because that's, that's just who God is. Lauren has an uncle who likes to cook. He's the type of uncle who comes to visit and he brings a cooler full of cooking stuff to spread all over your kitchen while he's at a visit. And he just cooks all day long. Her familys they're, they're used to it. Uh, my mother-in-law probably doesn't appreciate the fact that he spreads everything all over her kitchen when he comes. But I love when Uncle Dave visits. He, he, he literally cooks like all day long. He wakes up and he starts cooking and he will be cooking till he lays down to go to bed. And he'll regularly bring food to you and just sit it right in front of you. No word spoken. Doesn't matter what you're doing. He'll just slap a plate of ribs right in front of you. You can be playing a board game. And he's like, you need these ribs in your life. I'm going to put that right there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, Like you'll want this tasting see that Uncle Dave can cook. That's, kind of, that's the demeanor he has about himself. He's that confident that you'll like what you taste. He's that confident in his cooking. And David here has such confidence in the goodness of God. And he says, just taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is no chance of you being let down. If you feast on the Lord, if you bet on God, you'll find the fulfillment that you desire. He himself has been resting in, tasting the Lord's goodness and faithfulness himself. So he invites others to do that along with him. And he assures them that they too will experience God's goodness and faithfulness to them if they do. And I imagine we should all take a cue from David here. Do we live making these kinds of invitations? Do we offer this kind of assurance of God's goodness to the world? Or do we do the opposite? Are we so worried about and and fixated on our fears that we don't even take time to reflect on God's goodness, let alone invite others to experience it? Might we sometimes be too arrogant to recognize that we're poor people, like David calls himself in verse 6, who are in need of God's assistance. And so we never actually think to boast in him or to, to invite others to rely upon him. Or maybe we're at that other extreme where, where we complain about what we don't have and about what's not right in our lives so much that what the world hears from us is that God isn't good. They shouldn't taste and see because we don't even seem to be liking what it is that we're tasting. Let's be intentional, beloved, about resolving to praise God, then inviting others to do so with us while assuring them that God is worthy of us doing so. And let's also take heed to what David teaches in these next few verses. We're now going to look at David's tutorial on life that he gives in response to God's faithfulness. This tutorial on life he gives in verses 11 through 14. We get to verse 11 and we read where David extends another invitation. This time he invites those who he refers to as children to listen and be taught about the fear of the Lord. This is him addressing the nation of Israel. He calls them children because he was king of Israel. And and there was this this understood relational dynamic of the king being like a father to the nation. He gave oversight and and leadership to the Israelite people as a father does in the home. And so David is seeking to do that here. He he, he wants to come and, and teach about what the fear of the Lord looks like when it's lived out. Again, this phrase about fearing God can understood stood to mean that one is so in awe of and, and submitted to God that their life becomes about worshiping him. So David says, come, children, come nation of Israel, learn from me about fearing God. Verse 12 says, who is someone who desires life, loving alone life to enjoy what is good? That's basically a way of saying if you want to have a joy filled life unto the glory of God, you'll listen to what I'm saying. And in verses 13 to 14, he gives these instructions. He says the people should keep their tongues from evil, keep their lips from deceitful speech, turn away from evil and do what is good and seek peace and pursue it. Now, notice that these specific commands are those that include both the external and the internal. They seem to, to kind of call on the whole life of a person. We've got the tongue and lips, which is our speech that shouldn't be evil or deceitful. Then we've got the turning away from evil and toward good. That's that's a summary of repentance, which starts inwardly. And then you've got the seeking peace and pursuing it, which brings this whole tutorial that David's giving to bear on the way we relate to other people. And this should call a couple of New Testament tutorials from Christ to mind. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. And earlier in Matthew 15, there was this implicit exhortation to not be like the Pharisees who loved and honored God, loved and honored the Lord with their lips, yet had hearts that were far from him. So David calls the people of God to live similarly, even here in the Old Testament, is a classic tutorial on life. This has always been the way for God's people to live. Love Him with your whole self and then love others as yourself. And like how can you not when you think of God's faithfulness to you, right? When you think of how faithful God is, you want to love Him with your whole self and you want to reflect Him in loving others as you love your own self. And so my encouragement, beloved, think of the Lord's faithfulness to you. Then be compelled to honor Him inwardly and outwardly with your lips and your heart and in your relationships with other people. David gives this tutorial on life, and he teaches what it looks like to fear the Lord and to live joyfully for his glory. And then in the rest of the psalm, he gets back to offering assurance of God's goodness to the righteous. But here, the assurance seems to be facing more toward eternity. And it's also an assurance of how God brings wrath on those who are not righteous. The righteous are rewarded by God while the unrighteous are punished by him. Look at David's promise of reward in the remainder of the psalm, Verses 15 and 16 should sound somewhat familiar to what we saw last week. You've got the righteous who have the eyes and ears of God that turn toward them. Like what a great blessing that is that the God of the universe is attentive to us in this way. And then you've got the unrighteous, those who do what is evil. And it says God's face is set against them. He's going to remove all memory of them from the earth. What a great terror that is, right? Like he'll wipe out all memory and evidence of your existence in every place except hell if you aren't seen as righteous. But here's the thing we got to catch in looking at verses like these. Even David, the one who wrote this song, he didn't find righteousness in himself. We know that we read through the scripture and we see records of, of of him acting outside of the Lord's will extreme sin at times in his life. So he didn't find righteousness within it was his faith in God and his attempts to live out that faith that declared him righteous. So he failed at the very things he's calling his readers to do, but he was faithful in repentance. He was faithful in pursuing the Lord continually. Verses 17 through 18, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and and rescues him from all the troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. We've seen statements like this all throughout this psalm, because the fact of the matter is that David was keenly aware of his need for God. He knew he needed salvation from God. And here's the interesting thing about those in the Old Testament. They lived before Christ. They knew they needed salvation from sin and salvation from separation from God, but they didn't understand exactly how it would come. So when they placed their faith in the God of the Bible, they were placing faith in what hadn't been fully revealed yet. It was this, this, this glimmer of future hope, this, this promise of a Messiah, this, this dimly perceived Savior who had been promised to come later on. This, it, was, it was kind of a, a silhouette of a Savior whose features they couldn't make out just yet. But listen to me, Pioneer Church. He's been revealed. The hope is no longer just a glimmer like it was. The promise has been kept. Our perception of the Savior doesn't have to be dim anymore. He's no longer a silhouette, but he's a vibrantly depicted Messiah whose salvific features we we see when we read the pages of the Gospels. His name is Jesus, and he is the reason there's a promised reward. In the rest of this psalm, David goes on to continue talking about the rescue that God's people find in him. And he mentions how God protects the bones of the righteous from being broken and how the evil see death and punishment while those who serve the Lord have their lives redeemed and are spared punishment. (laughs) This is a foreshadowing. It's it's, it's a pre-picture of this now-revealed Savior that we're talking about. Hundreds of years after David wrote this, there would be a Savior to hang on a cross. And John 19 tells us this. It says, They came to Jesus as he hung there. But they did not break his leg since they saw that he was already dead. He who saw this testified so that you, we, beloved, might believe. The testimony is true, and we can know that the truth is being told. For these things happened, fulfilling the scripture that says not one of his bones will be broken. David didn't know it when he wrote it. But him writing about how God protects the bones of the righteous was actually him pointing to how God would protect the bones of the righteous, one, even while he suffered this brutal beating and hanging in his crucifixion. Friends, Jesus would be the righteous one sent to provide righteousness that all need but none have. He provided by taking his righteous life and willingly laying it down as a sacrifice. And then he provided by by taking his righteous life again and rising from the grave that they placed him in. Jesus, friends, is the reason there's a promise of reward. He's the reason death can be escaped. He's the reason lives can be redeemed. Jesus is the reason that punishment for sin is not endured for those who take refuge in him. That's what this psalm points to. It's not just God saving David, but this is God through Christ saving us. This is the hope we have in Christ. We got a faithful God who is faithful to rescue us when we got no other way out. And he's shown this by sending a perfect savior as the rescuer. So pioneer church, won't we be like David and resolve to praise him, invite others to praise him and assure them that he's good. Follow the life tutorial that he lays out for us and rest in this promised reward of a redeemed life. Can we live like that church? Let me pray for God to help us in it. Father, again I say, we want to be a people who bless your name at all times. We want to have your praise on our lips always. We want to boast in you. We want to invite others into this journey of boasting in you with us. And we want to do it all because we recognize who you are, we see your goodness. We see your greatness. We see your sacrifice and redemptive power displayed through Christ. And so I pray that we'd be faithful to behold that day in and day out and to respond with lives of praise. Help us in this God, we pray. In Christ's name himself. Amen.